Hi, I'm Kevin K. Shaw. This is Play Years. Thanks for listening. Nobody dies rich in this completely alien civilization because accumulation of money isn't the end game. Here, it begins with just one circle that is very carefully made. And then more circles are made until it's a sea of circles that quickly become three-dimensional tubes. Those huge cylindrical tubes, as they are built, change shape with heating and cooling and time. This is where you'll be born. To really study this civilization from the inside, we must be born in it. And the first thing you experience as you gain consciousness is not a sight or sound, but a feeling. That feeling is the enveloping warmth of a gel all around you. It surrounds you as you are suspended in it. And if you open your mouth, you swallow it in. It is sweet and muffled through all of this jelly. You can hear a hum fluctuating at around 200 hertz. It's not the heartbeat of a human mother in your previous life, but the sound is alive and gives you the same kind of comfort. Time is funny here and at your age. Sometimes seconds seems like days and days like seconds. And as you grow with each bite of the goo, you get stronger, so you better keep eating. You wriggle your way eventually to the top of a cylindrical tube and move toward the star, in our case, a synthetic full-spectrum artificial sun. You feel heat blowing past you as you poke your head out of the tube. The air warms the entire biosphere you've been born inside and are about to explore. You've grown big enough now to crawl up completely out of your tube, but when you do, you quickly lose grip of the floor, if it is a floor in fact and you begin to float, slowly moving away from the tube you were born in. You see for the first time an adult nearby. She's not your mother, but she feels familiar. She's taken care of you and your siblings since birth, and you see the source of the humming sound. It's her wings flapping wildly to no effect. She looks panicked that her wings aren't helping her in this endless float, and then you realize it's more than panic. This is fear. She floats away from you helplessly, turning upside down and spinning, unable to control her movements. You want to help her, and that's when you see there are many more adults, thousands of them in fact, all struggling just the same, flapping ineffective wings. You are young, however, and you aren't really scared. You have to learn quickly here, and as you continue floating helplessly, you reach out into space, and that's when you realize you have wings too, which have hardened now since your birth. So you give them a shot, and you try what the adults are doing. But like them, your flapping does nothing except make you spin. So you stop flapping and just watch, as the adults continue to struggle and float, like creatures in a pond that forgot how to swim, helplessly going in circles. Suddenly you slam hard into a translucent surface. You shake it off and clutch it. It's a giant glass wall of some sort. You steady yourself against the wall, and for the first time, you use your legs to jump off the glass and float back toward the structure from where you were born. And it works. You shoot towards your home and then jump off it again, shooting in another direction. Oh, so that's how to do it here in a world without gravity. You keep hopping off walls, zipping past adults. You just need to use your legs, not your wings, and you've already mastered it. Some adults see what you're doing and calm down a bit. A few stop flapping too, 
learning from you. Outside your biosphere, there's a planet in the window, but your eyes are not designed to see it, or at least from this far away. Also, the synthetic sun is too bright. That is, until a giant head peering in at you from outside the glass wall blocks the light completely, throwing your entire world into shadow and darkness. It was my son's very first school book fair. First grade was all pandemic in front of the screen, but for second grade, he was back in school. And that meant he got to experience his first proper book fair with money we gave him to spend. In this case, to spend on both he and his sister. And he had a good enough grasp of math to figure out how to buy two nice books with $12. That was the mission, at least. When he came home after the first day, he didn't get any books. Instead, he came home with a switchable, multicolored ballpoint pen he bought for around two bucks and handed me the change. He said he wanted to get two books, but that $12 wasn't enough and that books cost too much. Now, what happened next was entirely coincidental, but I asked him how much he actually needed to get two books, and he said 15 bucks. So I looked at the change to make up the difference, but there was only $7 left and some coins. So I asked him where the rest of the change was, but he said that was all of it. So I checked his backpack and found some more loose change, but not enough. And then there was a crumpled receipt and a new bookmark. On the receipt was two pens and a bookmark that had totaled around five bucks. His mom and I realized we were had. I confronted him about the receipt and he immediately suddenly remembered what happened. He bought the pen for himself and a bookmark for his sister, which was also in the backpack, but he forgot to give it to us, he said. The second pen turned out to be for his friend, who was begging him to buy him one. He told us he felt bad, so he bought his friend one. And then he cried about lying, and we told him it was a big responsibility carrying money around to buy something for himself and his sister, and that we would trust him again, but he can never lie. He agreed, apologized profusely, and was genuinely sorry, so we gave him another chance the next day. This time, with the seven bucks he had left from the first mishap, plus another new eight, so now 15 for the original mission. The second day of the book fair, when he came home, instead of a book for himself and one for his sister, he came home with a diary that had a key and a cat on the cover for himself, as well as the same pen he bought yesterday, but now for his sister. The diary with a key was clearly too irresistible, and he didn't even pretend it was for his sister. He only bought a book for himself, and that was 12 bucks. And he felt bad about it, and once again he was in trouble, and again he was apologetic and said he didn't know what to get her and most of the items had sold out, which actually turned out to be true. He offered to give the diary to his sister, who couldn't write or read by this time. She didn't know what to do with it, and we didn't either. We were genuinely disappointed and he knew it. And on the last day of the book sale, instead of giving him money, we went after school as a family, and my daughter picked out a book for herself. It was a book about princess ninjas, which we bought for her, and my son, now a pen, bookmark, and diary with a key richer, kept a low profile. Maybe next year, we thought, after further training and reviewing a few principles about telling the truth, he'd have another chance to prove he can handle money in his pocket. Eventually, that diary with the key lost its key, and after that, the book was abandoned in the garage and collected moisture and dust and eventually was tossed into the trash. Just like my first purchase, a pack of baseball cards I'd stick into the spokes of the tires of my bike to make a motorcycle sound. My son's first big purchase all on his own would turn out to be pretty much a waste of money.
A very long time ago, a dark and thin man, wearing animal skins and hide boots, enters the darkness of a cave system. He is hungry, but he has come here with a purpose, and will take care of this before he eats. He has to crawl, and he's adept at it, as he's been here before and lives nearby. He pauses a moment to listen quietly, to make sure there are no bears sleeping here. He has come back alone to mark the treasure that was found a few days earlier. His method is using a stick and some paint he's created out of red ochre and water. He finds the rock surface he wants to paint. Perhaps it's not far from the treasure itself. He climbs into position to paint. Using the stick, which he dips into the red pigment used all over the world by similar artists of the era, he starts on his masterpiece. And when it is done, it will clearly depict a woman standing on a rudimentary ladder, reaching up toward a circular blob precariously on the edge of a cliff. She is holding a container in one hand, and there are five flying alien creatures that have her surrounded, one distinctly bigger than the others. The woman's other hand is reaching into a blob at the top of the cliff, where the treasure is. So this painting perhaps is in fact the X that marks the spot. This painting is a representation of treasure, of money in a way, of riches beyond comprehension that one woman perhaps found here and brought home. Something more than sustenance, a dream find really in the game of life at this time. Now the creatures that the artist carefully has depicted are large and winged and sharp. So perhaps the artist here is showing us the dangers of the treasure too. So maybe this isn't a treasure map, but a stark warning to beware of these creatures. No one knows for sure every reason this man, or woman, painted this here inside a cave, but there is one undeniable reason. Honey. Because that blob the red figure is reaching into is a hive, and that container is a basket filled with honey that she has boldly and fearlessly taken. Those creatures to beware of are of course ancient wild bees, angry at the disturbance. This was painted at a time when Europeans were first getting the hang of agriculture and a patriarchal society was still developing. So maybe this was her job and painting this was his work. But either way, they were among the first harvesters of wild honey that we know about because of this painting. As there was no money to speak of at the time, we can only assume they ate the honey or shared it but perhaps they bartered it for something else like flax or chickpeas or other Neolithic crops emerging at the time. We can't know for sure, as the only evidence we have for any of this imaginative journey is a slice of human imagination recorded in the Epipaleolithic era, or about eight to 10,000 years ago, realized in this very painting that can still be seen on the side of a cave in modern-day Valencia, Spain. By the time human stealing from bees was depicted this strikingly by humankind again, it was in Egyptian hieroglyphs, depicted in a solar temple dedicated to Ra around 4,000 years later. And the entire process of stealing honey from bees was more refined by then, as they weren't stealing honey from wild bees anymore. They were beekeeping. The scary shadow has disappeared from view, 
so you use your legs to leap off the glass and float past the rows of structures where more of your kind are being born. You wonder why anyone in this zero-gravity civilization even has wings if they really don't do anything. You are a female, and you are grateful for that, as there is a sort of caste system here. And as a female, you are either born a goddess or a producer, and there can only be one goddess. So you were born a producer and that's fine. You gather and prepare food and resources and run errands and build homes. You take care of the young, provide heat, and pretty much anything the one true goddess here needs. As for the males, well they have it easy and they don't really do much. Their job is strictly genetic delivery, but if they aren't useful at all, then they are banished to death. Also, once the males here do their job, which is to go out and mate with another goddess from another kingdom, well that irresistible act of creation is so powerful, it kills them too. Also, when the air turns bitter cold and the food supply for the entire civilization gets low, the males, who tend to eat a lot, are again cast out to their death. Finally, if at any point there are too many males being born, or just eating too much food, they're also cast out to their death. So that's how it works here, in a society not based on money, though that's not the reason this civilization operates like this. It's part instinct, part evolution, and part learned behavior. Plus a little bit of mystery we're still trying to understand. But at its core, it's about survival. And as there is no money, there is also no pity. And everyone needs to contribute in some way to survive. But here, the females unequivocally do much more. This structure of civilization and way of life has helped this alien species you've been born into at least a hundred million years more than humankind, thus far. And this civilization you've been born into works through a constant cycle of exchange, a balance that has nothing to do with balance sheets. Although your childhood will end soon and you will begin to work too, everyone does their part here making what's needed without any concept of making money. Long before the book fair incidents, I tried to teach my son about making money. When he was really young and his sister was just born, my son had a lot of questions about work. Specifically, why do I leave each morning and where do I go every day? Why do I go there? Why do I need to go there? What is a job? Why do people need jobs? And lastly, why can't we buy a Tesla? Which was sort of related to the previous questions. The same questions came up nearly every day I left to work, as he tried to make sense of why mom and dad are out there working instead of just playing with them all day. I remember telling him repeatedly in different ways that it was so that we could have a roof over our head and live nicely and buy things. I explained clearly and simply, I thought, that we worked to make money to buy food, his toys, things we need, gas, all of that. But on one particular car ride, at four years old, he pushed further than he pressed in the past. Dad, why do you have to work? He said. I told him everything I told him before, but this time he was frustrated and still didn't let it go. Well, we need to make money. That's why I work, I told him. But why do you need to make money? He said. Well, you have to make money to survive. It's how we buy food to eat. He thought for a moment and said, well, maybe I can help you make it. I laughed and told the little guy, no, don't worry, it's okay. 
I explained his mom and dad work so he doesn't have to make money, and he's too young to think about all that. But he insisted by saying, I can help you make money. Really, I can. I have scissors. We have green construction paper and pens. Is that what we need to make money? It kind of floored me. All this time, I had told him we worked to make money, but his four-year-old brain thought it was literally making money. Making dollar bills out of green paper. Printing it ourselves. Cutting it with scissors. And he thought that's why I left for work and what I did every day. I explained to him that I was using the wrong word. It wasn't making money. It was actually earning money. And he asked what I meant by earning money, and rather than get into it all again, I decided I was going to take him to work with me to cover all the questions he had in one big shop. He would get to see firsthand why I leave every day for work and how I earn money. And as is the nature of work, before long, there was a particular Saturday that required me to come in for a few hours, so I decided to take him with me, and he was eager to come. Most of my co-workers wouldn't be there, and so there would be minimal disruption, and it would be his chance to see up close for himself how to make money, a life lesson through experience rather than lecture. To experience ancient Egypt is to experience an alien civilization. The setting is familiar, of course. It's a tropical place. The air is humid and there are complex canals feeding lush farms that surround you. You can see the pyramids rise up in the distance. There is a circle game Egyptian children are playing nearby. They look like hula hoops, and they use vines tied together into tight circles that they can play with. We know this because of the hieroglyphs the Egyptians left behind for us, and the circle itself wasn't just a sacred symbol of the sun. It was also a toy here, for the kids. Of course, that same circle was made popular again when it was fashioned out of plastic and later with beads inside in the 50s. But these ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs from the Old Kingdom don't just reveal this game kids could master playing with a hula hoop. But if you go just past these fields and gain entrance with a priest to the solar temple built here in the 25th century BCE, then you will see the hieroglyphs also reveal on five limestone blocks a priest kneeling before nine horizontal beehives while holding an oval object in one hand, cupping his other hand over an opening that faces the hives. The hieroglyphs label his actions NFT, translated as to blow, and the root of this word means emitting a little sound. This technique of calling queens out from the hive will be practiced by beekeepers for thousands of years, and this writing tells us the ancient Egyptians' understanding of bee behavior was much more advanced than one might realize. And this is just one of the displays that survived. Humanity was probably practicing proper beekeeping techniques long before these hieroglyphs were even created. There wasn't a need for physical money for a very long time here, or when this temple was built. But that changed when the Greeks and other traders across the Mediterranean wanted to be paid in metal circles. So the first coins appeared here around 500 BC. Before that time, and for most of the era of the pharaoh, there really isn't money in the sense that we understand it today. But there was a cycle of exchange and commerce and trade. And there was freedom too. Metals like silver and copper weren't fashioned into circular disks as coins. 
but they were valuable in that they were used to standardize weights to measure grain and other goods. And in this caste system of sorts, there was the wealthy, which were landowners that could store grain, and there were also the slaves, and the citizens alike, whose entire life's work, whatever it is, is also the pharaoh's work. And in this system, there are also these priests, and above them, even higher priests and pharaohs in her circle. Those highest priests were easily identified, but rarely seen beyond the temple walls. They were completely clean-shaven, including eyebrows. They wore simple linen cloth, and they served the gods and performed sacred rituals and pretty much nothing else. But the priests below them, some actually working part-time, as was customary, did most of the work in terms of the maintenance of the kingdom. They did the accounting, made a lot of the important decisions on behalf of the kingdom, and these priests were also beekeepers. Honey is a currency here, after all, and it's easy to store, easy to transport, and lasts a long time. Other goods are measured up against the value of honey. Things are worth their weight in honey, or not. Honey is used to pay taxes and make tributes if you didn't want to call it a tax, or if you particularly loved your pharaoh. Honey is also medicine here, and if you work for pharaoh, you might be able to get a spoonful of raw honey a day to increase your lifespan. Seems silly, but with no other sweeteners like sugar or corn, it was perhaps the sweetest, most nutritious thing on earth. And it was widely known by all that the magical spoonful would make you live longer too. So yeah, honey is the nectar of the gods here. And the bees? Well, of course, they're sacred. That part is obvious. Pharaoh is known as the bee king, and the sanctuary of Osiris is also known as the mansion of the bee. And according to a piece of papyrus written around 300 BC, the Egyptian sun god Ra, quote, wept, and the tears from his eyes fell on the ground and turned into a bee. Honey here was so important that you couldn't just indulge in this life, you had to be buried with it for the afterlife. Honey was found, preserved, 3,000 years later, in the tomb of Tutankhamun. King Tut must have really liked honey too, as when they opened that tomb in 1922, there was in fact 2,000 pots of honey for him to enjoy on his celestial journey into the afterlife. Incidentally, one of the archaeologists back then, the brave one, even tasted it, and it was still sweet and edible. Honey's acidity, lack of water, and presence of hydrogen peroxide makes it basically last forever. And reserves of honey were kept by the kingdom, like reserves of grain that as a farmer you could withdraw if you needed. So there was no need to hoard your own. It's hard to say when humans finally figured out what those bees were doing in those flowers, and how the colony operated around the queen but we do know that Homo sapiens have been around for about 200,000 years. As for bees, at least 100 million years. And we know that from evidence found in amber in a Burmese cave. All the way back then, the earth was much different. Egypt was under a vast sea that stretched across the heart of Africa, all the way to the Atlantic. And India was an island next to Madagascar before its long trek to Asia to push the Himalayas up into the sky with its impact. The earth was covered in dense jungles and vast deserts, and dinosaurs ruled. So bees have quite a long time to evolve into perfection and perfect symbiotic harmony with the plant kingdom too. 
in particular flowering plants that require animal assistance with pollination. Even in the present, we can't duplicate what bees do so efficiently in the lab, although we're trying, particularly for pollination in space, as anywhere in the solar system we want to travel, we will need to grow space food. And wherever we grow food in space, or in habitats on Mars, we will need pollinators. In this floating zero-gravity civilization of creatures, thrust into distinct roles from birth, the female producers that raise the babies aren't developed themselves in terms of reproduction, and so they can't mate until they are chosen and begin transformation, if they're ever chosen. Because the goddess is here to stay through many generations, like the work on the pyramids of Egypt. The workers will come and go and live and die while the goddess continues. And even though everyone pretty much knows their role in this moneyless society, it's a dangerous situation to be without the goddess. You will not survive. She only rarely leaves the home, and if she does, it's only for about 12 minutes at a time when she takes flight and sprays love perfume to attract males. The first act she ever did after her birth was immediately kill all the other potential goddesses. That's how you know she's the one. But here, there will be no mating or flying. We are being held captive behind a large glass wall that keeps everything inside and afloat. The goddess is present, thankfully. We know she's present because she looks like no one else and she doesn't look happy at all this zero gravity. It makes her job laying eggs that much harder. Everything in this civilization really revolves around her. She's the eye on the top of the pyramid here, and there's no currency she provides except giving you another chance at another day of life. And there's no need for money, as the goddess provides, and the citizens provide, everyone provides. And aside from those cast out because they aren't being useful, everyone builds together. It's not always harmonious here, but there's harmony enough to last millions of years. And also dancing is very important here, and always has been. The dancing is part of the way of life, and along with the perfume, keeps everyone together and close and happy. Except here, right now, in 1984, things have been thrown into disarray and no one is happy. In this science experiment, the goddess we've been discussing is actually a queen bee, and you and the rest of the producers are female worker bees. But you're not on Earth. Rather, this is all part of an orbital mission conducted on a space shuttle named Challenger. 3,500 bees in all here have been launched into space in order to see what the effects of microgravity might have on these pollinators, including how they build their hives, lay their eggs, and fly, all in an effort to prepare ourselves for growing food off planet Earth someday. And although this NASA experiment is not entirely a failure, it's not going quite well either. And these bees are struggling a bit with what they've been thrown into by their human counterparts. They can't fly in zero gravity. And NASA has experimented more than once with bees in space. In experiments like these, using a habitat box built by, unironically, Honeywell, the female bees do their thing, laying down circles, which become cylindrical tubes, eventually transforming with temperature and time into hexagonal shapes that all together we know as a honeycomb. But what is remarkable about this experiment conducted almost 40 years ago and before the shuttle met its end the new hatchlings learn pretty quickly that they don't need their wings at all. They could just jump off surfaces and get around. And some of the adults struggling to fly 
learned that behavior from the kids before the experiment was over. Sadly, any eggs laid by the queen failed to hatch up there, so it could be that this experiment taught us that humankind has a long way to go before we make a viable solution to the bees and pollination for food and space in the future, as well as here on Earth. Robotic pollinators, and we have built some, just don't do the trick the way bees do. And without bees, it's hard to say how the fabric of life in the entire food chain would unravel. 87 crops require help from animal pollination, and bees are the most important animal pollinators. If bees went extinct, we'd probably survive, but our diets would be decimated. Almonds wouldn't exist. Coffee would be very expensive, given its flower only opens for a few days to artificially pollinate. Apples, avocados, onions, and a variety of berries would go extinct. Not to mention honey. All that in one tiny creature. I guess if it was ancient times and not today, and we just learned about all this, we'd just nod and high-five each other and continue believing what we already know. That bees are life-giving and sacred. It was a Saturday, but when we got to work, my son, who joined me in order to learn how to make money, was dressed nicely with some gel in his hair and was very excited. As far as he knew, it was just a regular work day, and for me, this was my opportunity to address his questions about why I work and where I go every day once and for all. The office was nearly empty as he walked through the hall behind me towards my desk. We said hi to my colleague, who was there too, and a good friend who's also my boss. My son sat down at a desk near me with a pen and three pieces of paper. I told him that while I finished my work, his job today was to draw shapes. He nodded, understood from my voice that this was really important. I gave him the pen and he went to work. The top of the page started off with triangles and sort of squares, but pretty much all the shapes turned into circles by the time he got to the bottom of the page. As I finished my work, glancing up at him a few times, sitting there, I couldn't help but think of my first job, in the summer, cutting corn when I was 13, making a little less than three bucks an hour under the table on a small Pennsylvania farm. It was exhausting work out in the sun, knife in our hand to cut the corn in one quick slice upwards, getting up at 5 a.m. to inhale tractor fumes, getting covered in dirt and dust by the end of the day, Thankful when the boss tells you to pick tomatoes, because at least you could do that at your own pace. Or ecstatic when the boss told you to do irrigation. At least you could let the water wash you off in the middle of the day, in the middle of a field. By the end of summer, my skin was toasted dark brown, and I remember asking my dad if life was going to be like this, making money. If life was this hard. He just said, yes. He emigrated to this country from poverty, without a chip on his shoulder, so he was just setting an example for a complaining 13-year-old who thought cutting corn was as hard as working for the pharaohs. In retrospect, actually, that job on the farm was the hardest money I ever made. My son completed a page and a half of circles, but was hungry, so I gave him some chips and an oaten honey granola bar, plus a coffee mug of water from the dispenser in the office kitchen which he poured himself and got a kick out of. He was very satisfied with the snack and thought it was pretty cool this place had chips for everyone. He ate the chips and continued drawing the circles, and I told him they were excellent circles and to keep going. 
When he was all done, he had a sea of circles across three pages. It was beautiful. It looked like a honeycomb. And by the time he got to the end, I was done with my work for the day as well. My boss came back in and I quietly gave him $3 and asked if he could give it to my son for the circles he made. And then I was trying to do a dad lesson thing. So as we packed to leave, I told my son to go turn in his work to the boss and receive the money he earned for the work he did. He was nervous, and as he approached my friend with his crinkled paper and hands covered in pen marks, my friend, totally in character, said in a booming voice, Do you have those circles for me? My son nodded and handed them over. His boss took them in and inspected them, nodded approvingly. My son didn't blink as he heard, These are great circles. Good job. And then my friend... <laughs> Sorry, just... It's funny. And then my friend pulled out the $3 I gave to him earlier and counted it out into my son's little hands, one at a time. Man, it was perfect. And the lesson here was learned. And after that, my son never really asked where I went or why I had to work or what I was doing or how one makes money. My son walked out of that office with a huge grin on his face. And although he only had $3 in his hand, I know he felt like a million bucks. On the ride home, I explained that the $3 are really 300 of those round brown pennies, which amazed him and made him think. I couldn't have known then that all I really taught him was doing work makes money, which is only part of the lesson. It would take a second attempt at a brand new book fair to make me realize I truly failed to teach him the whole picture about the value of money. Okay. But let's take a break from talking about how I screwed up to go shopping in order to explore the value of money, just for perspective. Not money now, the value of money on a shopping trip through the outskirts of Chicago, a hundred years ago. It's turn of the century of America. No planes yet, no cars. You're a young boy living in the outskirts of Chicago, and you have a lot more responsibility than kids your age in the present, that's for sure. If you weren't in school, then chances are you had a fair amount of independence early on. Life wasn't easy. Dad had to work. Mom took care of all the kids and grandparents and uncle. And it was hard to make a buck. But if your dad did manage to earn money in the early 1900s, and if your parents entrusted you with a few bucks to buy something for your siblings and the family at the store, here's what you could do, if you were being honest about it and could carry it all. You could buy mom one pound of bacon for 14 cents, a five pound sack of flour, 12 cents, a five pound sack of sugar, 30 cents, a gallon of milk, 14 cents, 10 pounds of potatoes, 14 cents. For your sisters and brothers, you could also get a pound of chocolate for 34 cents that you could all share, and a six and a half ounce bottle of Coca-Cola for five cents that you could all take turns sipping from. For dad, you could get him a pound of coffee for 14 cents one postage stamp to send a letter to a cousin in New York for two cents, and at mom's request, a nice men's dress shirt for dad for a dollar. But you could also get a surprise for mom, a fancy lady's hat from the shop owner that fancies her. He gave it to you for 35 cents and urged you to tell her it's from him. And of course, for yourself and the trouble, a movie ticket for 10 cents. That is, if you could convince a very well-dressed and upper-class grown-up to let you sneak into the plush theater with them and your bags of groceries. 
Grand total for all that? $3. Now, if you didn't really get the value of that money, you could also just ignore the list Mom sent you for what to buy and just walk right into Sears Roebuck and buy for you and your friend a five-pound box of Sour Balls for $1.70 and spend the rest on movie tickets, Coca-Cola, and two hand-carved yo-yos and have a blast all day. And, of course, get yelled at by Mom and most likely spanked by Dad later that night. Nowadays, of course, that $3 my son earned for the circles can get a downloadable song for Mom or a 48-hour digital movie rental for Dad or a large fries for Sister, but just one of those things. Not all. In purchasing power, three bucks in 1922 is $53 today, and there is no chance in our system of money that it'll go back to that value unless something breaks entirely. Economists have their reasons, but common sense tells you this is a flaw. Why is $217 in 1722 worth $76 in 1822, and today, worth the $3 my son earned for the circles. Funny thing, right? At some point, holding money, unlike honey or precious metals, went from holding value to slowly over time, losing all value. And at some point, it went from being backed by those precious metals to floating, like it's just paper, and being made, quite like my son imagined, just not with construction paper and scissors, but definitely printed out of thin air. In ancient China, honey was actually used as money, and the Chinese would keep meticulous pieces of paper describing goods and transactions. Eventually, the Chinese realized it was much easier to exchange that piece of paper than always transporting the actual goods. It required trust, and there was trust then. And soon that led to the first real paper money. The ancient Chinese had a word for the paper, which poorly translates to flying money. Today, with our systems of money, outside a few new innovations, you pretty much always have less than you started with over time. Like a pot of honey with a hole in it large enough to begin a drip, your money diminishes in value, whether you like it or not, like money flying away. Flying money is a good description for fiat today. Or if you can take your flying money, if you have a lot of it, and loan it to some poor soul that promises to pay you back with a little extra, then you can take that promise and get more money and loan it to another poor soul. That person that gave you more money, well, he can take your promise and get more money for himself, too. But that's only for those that have a lot of flying money. Once it gets up there, it really soars. Then what happens if that person can't pay you back and you can't pay your share back either? And what happens if you're a country at the end of a golden age. Unfortunately, the current state of flying money is the only model humans could come up with for society to function after all these years of evolution. Or maybe flying money is what's holding future development back. Maybe this monetary system is an errant human-created tangent rather than an innovation. Or maybe for now, it's just the best money can do. Because I didn't quite think everything through, I upped the stakes and gave him $20 for this year's brand new school book fair. 
My son wanted to avoid the trouble he got into last year, and we also wanted to give him a second chance, as all parents should, with things like this. So for third grade, the mandate this year was he buy himself and his sister a nice book for under $10 each. And now that she could attend the book fair too, but wasn't yet old enough to use money and make change, his sister could also pick out the book she wanted, and he would definitely buy it. The first day he came home with a book he bought for himself, and it was a book about sharks, and he bought a book for his sister too, but it was a book about Pokemon. She didn't really care for Pokemon at all, but he did, and I'm assuming he probably convinced her it was cool. He pleaded with us that there was a book she wanted and he was going to buy it, but they ran out and had to restock it. The next morning, after a follow-up investigation, I saw they did in fact run out, and I told him to buy it for her when they were restocked. But later that day, when he had another chance, and only one register was working and the line was very long, he said that when he finally did get close to buying it, that register broke too. This was the story he told us as to why he couldn't buy it and came home with nothing. All that sounds like a crazy imagined story as an excuse, but it was confirmed in an apologetic email sent out by the school describing the register incident. He was pretty upset about it all and the next day he promised he'd get the book. But on the last day of the book sale, that book she wanted was sold out. With my big lesson having turned into a giant mess and my idea of giving him a responsibility with money completely disintegrating into chaos, I did my best to gather what lessons could be learned from the entire experience. He was really disappointed and frustrated that he tried to make up for getting her that Pokemon book, which she never once opened, but then couldn't because of the register breaking. I asked him what he might do next year differently if we gave him the money again. And then something unexpected happened. He burst into tears. I asked him what was wrong and he told me, quote, I don't like book fairs. I wish there was no such thing as book fairs. I asked him why he was saying that and he said, it's too tempting. I didn't know what to say. I told him something about a lot of choices in life and something entirely forgettable and lackluster. I probably used the word materialism until he checked out entirely. That lesson, to face so many choices in life, he's gonna face again and again. It's a lesson I'll do my best to help him with but he'll have to learn someday properly on his own. All I have to do is shove this green rectangular piece of paper my dad gave me into that lady's hand and then I get this super cool book on sharks? Money and Temptation. Drawing circles wasn't gonna teach him the value of money. That lesson just answered his first questions about it and added a few more. When those questions get answered to his satisfaction as he grows up, I'm sure new ones will emerge like, where will I get my first job? Or how much should I save to get that particular thing? Or even, what can I invest in so the money doesn't fly away? Or maybe he'll have other questions I'll fumble until he gets into the rhythm of the circle of earning and spending. After that, by design, those questions recede as they often do for all of us except for that one question that always remains about money. Where can I get some? Perhaps that's how money is designed to be, unless you're able to see through its design. And even if you could, what could you do about it? I hope along the way, my son will get a healthy understanding on how to handle both temptation 
and money through trial and error in book fairs and beyond. For humanity, money was an evolution of convenience and helped solve problems with barter, but hindering it as long as possible was also a way for elites to retain political power and more easily skim off surplus. But money moved humans past barter into a system where elites, in a way, still do attempt to provide everything. And once we moved from nomadic culture to agrarian, the metaphorical pharaoh lasted a long time, and perhaps figuratively still does. The elite queens of the colony, like the companies that formed at the turn of the century, know the money they provide to you working for them, you'll just end up spending in their store. So you're made to think that the goal really is perhaps saving enough to become an elite. But that's made impossible in our monetary system, because not every worker can be a queen. It doesn't work like that. And if those early company stores people used to live and die for are now countries with currencies, then perhaps we really haven't progressed much at all with this entirely human invention. At least in Egypt, we can see complex society work for a long while before it didn't without a need for money. And not long after money arrived, that society disappeared, perhaps coincidentally, but perhaps not. Like bees, the daily motivation to work in ancient Egypt didn't have the concept of money as we know it in their daily existence, and yet they existed. No one knows for sure, but it's likely that the last human colony on Earth will have the same use for money as the first colony did. And of course, somewhere deep underground in Egypt, there's probably still another pot of honey waiting to be discovered thousands of years later, sealed, still sweet-smelling, put there with the pharaoh or some important figure for use in the afterlife. But as for us, we know we're not going to take any of the honey or money with us. So maybe it means taking a good look at what you really need in the circle of life when the clock brings you back to midnight. Maybe in some future iteration, humankind will break the cycle they've created somehow and find a way for the workers to thrive as well as the queens. Or at least those honest workers, the ones that don't consider all this about money. They just get up day in and day out and make it for their family and bring up their young and see the value of living a good life. That too is a story worth earning. As for bees, which are disappearing quickly now, after all the millions of years, how much are bees really worth? If you did the math and calculated the loss of agriculture alone, they're worth a lot. But then again, that's only comparing these species to money. And when the last honeybees have long since died, that last pot of honey will in fact be worth a lot of money, in whatever form money exists then. And you'll be rich, if that was your big investment before the bees died. But if that actually was the last pot of honey on earth, then probably money or bartering will fail, and more likely fists or weapons will prevail. Maybe just like those bees aboard the space shuttle Challenger, for us, the parents will struggle a bit but the kids will get the hang of it faster, learn quicker on how to navigate what they're born into, and fly just fine through money and temptation. That's our hope anyway, and the reasons for the lessons about money with my son, useful or not. Who knows what money will be like a hundred years from now, but at least our kids, if they learn to fly without flapping and learn quickly, then maybe they might just teach us a thing or two about stopping the flap to enjoy the float.
Humanity hasn't done much else with insects in space, but we will eventually, when there is more funding for these experiments, and probably when bees are that much closer to the edge of extinction than they are now. And they are pretty close. One thing the experiments in space have taught us is that although we'll be able to definitely store it for a long time out there in the void, the eggs won't hatch. So as far as we know for now, there will be no fresh honey or beekeepers on Mars. Either way, our children will have another form of currency in exchange, which like all parents, we pay without owing, and our kids don't need to pay for it, or barter for it in any way. It's unconditional, and it never loses value. And it's an investment, really, something that increases in value over time if it's never held back and offered without worry of cost. And it's sweet as honey, that's for sure, and even sweeter in these young years. And like honey, it'll last long after we're gone. So perhaps in the future, the love our children might return to us is earned, but not expected. And perhaps there's no return on investment with a lifetime of love, because there's never a need to pay back if you just keep giving with your endless supply. One can be cynical about it, but having just passed 8 billion people this month, humanity does need to latch on to a concept that is both sustainable and accessible to all. So whether or not love is deflationary or inflationary, I do not know. We can leave that to love economists. But in the end, if it's mutual, between friends or family or couples, and it sustains, then perhaps when the end of earning and giving is near, at the end of our lives, then maybe unlike money, that lesson learned about love, even factoring in inflation, will still let you die rich. <laughs>